this morning as I was coming into the church, I come really early on Sunday mornings. I like to come early because I like to spend some time alone in the morning. It's usually dark. Uh, I like to pray. I like to think about what's going to be happening that morning and see how I can center myself around Jesus and think about what I'm going to be sharing, even though I've kind of prepared. I just want to be ready for it. And this morning as I was coming in, I was leaving my home. It was about 4.30 in the morning, and it's dark out. And I'm just thinking, and I was trying to play some music on my car as I was driving out, plugging in my phone. And I was just thinking, like, how do I start the service today? This is usually like my last thing to do is figure out, what am I going to say to make you listen to me? Like, why would anybody want to listen to me? That's usually what I'm thinking myself. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, like, oh, we're in the series Signs. I've told all the stories I have about signs. I don't have any more stories about signs. And as I'm trying to get the song to play on my radio, I just went right through a stop sign. And I thought, wow, maybe I'll just tell them that. And I did. There you go. <laughs> right? Because the sign has a purpose. As we've been in this series called Signs, we've been talking about how uh, John writes out his gospel with a series of signs to demonstrate and point us in a direction. Just as that stop sign was telling me something and I completely ignored it, we have the opportunity to either pay attention to the signs that God is giving us or just blow right past them and not be distracted by something else and not even pay attention to it. As if you've been here in person or online, or if you've read the Gospel of John before, you know there's a series of approximately seven signs. I say approximately because there's a lot of debate as to where it all falls, but there's seven signs that John points to to say who Jesus is, and he starts off with the miracle of changing water into wine that we talked about a few weeks here ago here, where it's a celebration that Jesus brings life into a, a scenario. And then there's the raising or the healing of the nobleman's son, and then there's the healing of a man who's been crippled, and then you have a feeding of 5,000, and the walking on water, and then the healing of a man born blind that we talked about last week, and then we come to the final-ish sign that points to the most important one this morning. And the sign is completely out of the ordinary, and that's the purpose of miracles. Miracles are meant to be a supernatural breaking in of the ordinary. It's the way really things should be, but they're not, because the reality is our world is broken, it's cursed, it's not the way things are supposed to be. So God supernaturally breaks into the created order, and something happens that demonstrates that God is powerful, that God is who he says he is, and that's what the signs are all pointing to. As Jesus performs these signs, he's demonstrating who he is to the audience around him, but also to us, as 2,000 years later, we get to read this Gospel of John. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the seventh sign. And this sign is the sign of all signs. And this sign involves his close friend, Lazarus. And some of you might be familiar with this story. And it involves the complete breaking of the created world to be the way it's supposed to be. So in John chapter 11, we encounter this scenario starts off like this. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So we get the setting of the scenario. We're getting told that this is coming to a place, Bethany, and there's an encounter that's going to happen with people who are close friends of Jesus. 
We're told little tidbits. And if you were here before, I said that John has never said anything by accident. Everything's very intentional. And one of the intentional things that he says is who he's going to see. He's going to see Lazarus, who's a good friend, and whose sisters are Mary and Martha. And then he gives that information about Mary is the one who poured oil on his feet and anointed his feet. Now, the thing about John's gospel is that story doesn't actually come till the next chapter. But John puts it in there for a reason. One of the reasons might be that John was the last gospel written. So people already knew this story. This story is found in every gospel in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which is rare, because not all stories find their way in all four. And as he's making a point saying, this is who the Mary is, his audience is reminded of who she is. Luke's gospel tells a little few different details, as every gospel has little details that are a little bit different. And in that few little details he gives, he says that she was someone who was of ill repute, someone who was a sinner. And people took great offense to the fact that she was pouring this perfume on his feet. And Jesus tells a story like, who has more to be thankful for? The one who has done much worse or the one who has done so little? And he says, well, it's the one who's done much sin, who has much to be thankful for because they'll be forgiven. And this is the woman that's in this scenario. This is the woman who is a sister to Lazarus, a sister to Martha. Maybe you've read the other Gospels. You know the other stories of Mary and Martha as well. They come up a few times in the Gospels. But he also makes the point of saying where they're going, which is Bethany. And Bethany, anytime the word Beth comes up in a, a word, uh, it means house. And Bethany is the house of figs, which is a great little piece of information if it's ever in Trivial Pursuit. But it's the house of figs, and figs are symbolic of the religious institution of Israel. It comes up over and over again in the Gospels. So when Jesus encounters a fig tree, and something happens to that fig tree, He's making a statement about the religious institution of Israel. And so as they're going to this place, this house of figs, there's a representation of the religious institution that's being mentioned. But it also means house of poverty or house of affliction, which is kind of an interesting dynamic when you think about it. So this is what's happening. Jesus is going to this home. He's going to end up going to this home because he's heard that his good friend Lazarus is sick and he wants to go there, understandably. Maybe you've had people in your life who've been gravely ill, and you know that you want to go as soon as possible to be with them. You know, whether it's someone who's a loved one of a family member or a close friend, you know that when you get word that someone is not doing well, you want to go see them. And sometimes we feel maybe a little guilty if we don't go soon enough. And so the story continues in verse 4. It says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Right? So we know that Jesus, his friend, is sick. And he has a sick friend. He says, it's not going to end in death, but it's for a reason. It's for God's glory. But he knows it's, this friend is so sick that there's a word that gets sent to him through messengers that, hey, you need to come see him. So what does he do? He stays where he is for two days. Can you imagine being in that scenario? 
Maybe it's you yourself. Maybe you've had some illness yourself in your life, and you've felt like, I don't know when my last breath is. And you call someone, and you say, I'd really love to see you. And they say, hey, I'll see you in two days. And you're thinking, maybe I won't make it. Imagine the scenario where the family members are thinking. Their brother, Lazarus, he's dying. Jesus says, you know, he's not going to end in death, but it's for God's glory. And then he just stays where he is for two days. The reaction, I would think, is frustration, is disappointment. And maybe you felt that yourself in a similar scenario. And the text says, well, then after those two days, he says to go to Judea. And then the story continues, and his followers say, no, don't, don't, why would we go there? Someone's going to try and kill you, Jesus. Why would you go there? And in the discourse, he says, as they're traveling, that Lazarus actually dies. And Jesus says, it's a good thing you weren't there when he died, so now you can see God's glory revealed. And we're going to jump ahead in the text, in verse 17. <clears throat> On his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary stayed at the home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. So he waits two days, and it's two days too late. He arrives and Lazarus is dead. It's been four days that Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. He's greeted, and the protest is, you know, he should have been here, but you weren't. And Jesus says, hey, he'll rise again. And her response is normal, understandable, in the context that they find themselves. They had a belief in in Israel, and, and we should actually still have this belief today in Christianity, that when you die, you will rise again. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. How that all works, there's a lot of mystery to it, for sure. But it's not so much about going and floating off to heaven, but a real, tangible, physical resurrection. That is what we hope for. That is the hope of Jesus. That there is more life to come. And so Martha knows, and she says, yeah, I know. One day he will rise again. That's the proper response. Yes, I know this. I've been taught this. I've been to church before. People have said these things to me. I've been to funerals. I know. But right now, my brother's dead. And so Jesus continues. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So at the protest that she says, I know what is to come, Jesus says, you know what? The resurrection isn't so much an event, it's a me. It's a person. That he is the one who brings the life to come. That he is the one who they can find hope and healing within, even now. That he is the resurrection and the life. 
If you've ever been to a funeral, you know that it's not always an easy time. I know, I know for some of us this week, we're going to a few funerals of people who uh, we've known over the years here at Bromley. And you know that when you go to a funeral, usually there's a sadness that comes over you, understandably. You're faced with the reality that that person you loved is no longer with you. And sometimes it's hard to find some hope that goes beyond what you're feeling in that moment. But Jesus' message is that there is hope. That there is life to come. So that even though we say goodbye now, there is something to hope for for those who are found in him. A life much greater than we could imagine. Resurrection and life. So as Jesus is having this encounter, as, as Martha is pouring out her heart, she confesses, I do believe it to be true. I know it's true. And as the text is going to continue, we're going to see how true it truly is. And we're going to jump ahead to verse 38. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, a sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. In the midst of the most tragic thing this family is feeling, the loss of their brother, Jesus steps in and performs something that is unimaginable. It is an unnatural reality in a very natural world where people die that he says, Lazarus, get up. And that sign that he performs is one that people have varying reactions towards. For his family, I would imagine, and understandably, as fearful (laughs) that this might have just happened, he's been dead for four days, There's a joy and a love and an excitement to see their brother. And then there's the other reaction of those who saw it and said, this guy's got to go. He is, he's doing things we don't want to see happen. He is breaking the way things are supposed to be in our mind. And so at that, the Pharisees, the religious leaders plot to kill him even more so, which is going to lead to what the signs have all been pointing to. Each of these signs is a breaking of the ordinary to something supernatural and extraordinary that God invites us to look at, to see, and to ask ourselves, what is this sign pointing to? What is this sign telling me? And this sign is very clear. Where there was death, there will be life. Where there was hopelessness, there will be hope. Where there's despair, there will be joy. Things will be new again. And ultimately, this sign points to what's going to happen to Jesus. Because the amazing thing about Lazarus is that, as the story could understandably go, people see that this dead guy is alive, and so what happens? They go, wow, this is crazy, and they believe. But Lazarus will die again. Lazarus did die again. 
There was a breaking of the natural world for a time, but there is a hope that is much greater, which all these signs point to in Jesus. As John's gospel continues, it tells the story of Jesus' death. And in telling Jesus' death, it reminds us of what we celebrated in baptism. There's a breaking of the natural order to be entering into life with God. And that's because of the cross. In John's gospel, he says this, starting at just uh, chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to his lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. We reflected on that on Good Friday, but we know, or I hope you know, the story didn't end there. And he comes back. He breaks the natural order so that eternity can be different. It's amazing what John records in those words that he says, it is finished, because that that word uh, in Greek is telestatai. And this word as a significant meaning in various scenarios. It's something that gets used in business. There's been some uh, papyrus, papyri that's been found of writing on it about debt relief, and that when you use this word, it means that your debt is paid in full. But it's also the word that gets used in a legal sense, in a legal terminology, that a sentence, once it's been served, it has been this, it's finished. And also in a military sense, that a battle has been won. So when Jesus proclaims that it is finished, he's saying that sin has been paid for, the debt's been paid, the sentence of sin, which is death, has been been taken care of, and that finally Jesus has won the battle, and the victory is ours. In Jesus' proclamation that it is finished, he's saying that your sin has been paid for. Your sentence has been served, and your battle has been won in him. That when he says it is finished, there's nothing more that can be done when we believe him. That he did it. It's done. This is the hope of those simple words, it is finished. The Apostle Paul teaches it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we were convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for those for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and that he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When Jesus proclaims that it is finished, he is saying the sin has been paid for, the debt is paid, the sentence is served, the battle is won. You are reconciled with God. Anything that prevented you from closeness to the creator of the universe is gone in Jesus, but only in Jesus. It's an invitation to a life that is new, that is different. It doesn't have to be stuck in the mindset of sin and sorrow and shame and pain, but can embrace life in all of its fullness. The gift of God is a new life because of Christ. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe him? When he says it is finished, when he says that your sin has been paid for, the debt is paid, when he says the sentence is served, when he says the battle is won, do you believe him? Or do you just keep going back? in embracing something so much worse than the gift God is offering you. Easter is a reminder that it is finished, but it's up to us to believe them. My prayer for you is that you embrace that. And as you embrace that in your life, you share that with others. As Paul says, you are Christ's ambassadors. If you know it to be true, help others know this gift of grace. We have, in your seats, you have these little crosses. I'd love for you to take one today as a reminder of Jesus who said, it is finished, who said, your debt is paid, your sentence is served, and your battle is won. If you don't find one in your seat, there are some all around, so I'm sure you can find one this morning. Ultimately, it's up to you, though, to answer the question, do you believe him? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us uh, the gift of life in you, Jesus. That you invite us to know you, to be with you, and to embrace more than we can ever imagine. I pray this Easter, wherever we find ourselves in our journey with you, that Holy Spirit, we open our hearts and minds to embrace the truth that our debt is paid that our sentence is served, and that the battle is won in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that victory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.